The Apartment Rebellion will not be televised. Resident experience will be more than a buzzword. Staff experience will finally matter. It's happening right now. It's in the hands of the doers, the innovators, the boundary pushers, who are moving the industry forward, just like the people on this show. This is the Apartment Rebels podcast, hosted by Flamingo CEO Jude Chi. Welcome, friends of the rebellion, and may the force be with you. All right. Awesome. Um, so welcome to uh, the latest Flamingo Resident Engagement and Experience podcast. So on today's episode, I have the pleasure of uh, welcoming Carol Enoch um, to the podcast. Uh, so Carol has is based out of SF, uh, but she has lived all over. The reason why I bring that up is because you have pretty much lived in all the cities that yep. are on my list. So yeah. Philly... Chicago, Denver, SF. So far, I've only really done Oakland, Chicago. I'm in Oakland now. I got to give the town its fair rep, but yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, so today I'm going to talk about property management, going to talk about resident engagement, resident experience, uh, a new exciting company, which I really want to learn more about and see where you currently are in the process, since it is still a baby that's about to be born. <laughs> it is a little tiny baby, Jude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had the first draft of my website that I finished yesterday and I sent mm-hmm. it to a handful of close family and friends and it was very nerve wracking. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, yeah, starting your own businesses. Um, it's a little bit scary, but, you know, I've been in the industry for, you know, 18 years. I've mm-hmm. launched multi-million dollar projects nationwide. As you mentioned, I've lived in great places across all asset classes. I've got, phenomenal network of people that I've, I've worked with and built connection and community with over the years. So there's, there's a ton of support when I stop and remind myself that it's out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what kind of got you into property management in the first place? Um, it happened completely on accident. So my background is in a theater. I, mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years, was still very active in the theater community in Chicago. My my degree is in theater from Indiana University in Bloomington. And I moved to Chicago in 2002 after college, fresh, you know, with a theater degree, ready to change the world. And I wanted to get <laughs> a job, right, that would pay the bills while I, you know, instilled my passion for changing community through theater. Um, So I answered an ad in the Chicago Reader, which is a newspaper. So I'm dating myself that I got to (laughs) see in the corner store. You know, I circled and highlighted what I wanted. And there was this ad for a leasing agent. And I didn't even know what that was um, really. And it said flexible hours, um, good money, creative people, you know, fax your resume, to this number. And I, because I went to theater school, had never used a fax machine before, <laughs> nor did I have a fax machine or know where one would get a fax machine. I was going to say, I don't think fax machines have been a thing for a while. <laughs> I know. This was in 2002. This was in 2002. <laughs> so my roommate at the time, uh, thankfully, went, her degree was in communications. So she got a little bit better. She's a little more prepared for the real world. And we had WinFax on our computer. So I typed up my cover letter, my resume, and I used this WinFax thing. And nothing happened. And so I like clicked send again. 
long story short, I accidentally faxed my resume 17 times. Oh, wow. And then Probably I wasn't meant that you were a serious candidate. You applied 17 times. 17 times. And then I still wasn't convinced that they got it. So I somehow I went to the library. I did some research and I figured out where I thought this company was. And so I mailed my resume and I was like, well, it's not that far. I should probably hand deliver it as well. Mm. Um, so needless to say, they did not file a restraining order, although I'm sure <laughs> that they had. Um, they called me in for an interview. I actually got hired on the spot. Oh, wow. Um, I worked for Karen Biazar, who is um, a, a, a giantess in the Chicago real estate world. She's a mentor, somebody that I respect greatly. Um, North Clyborne Group is one of the um, uh, earliest female-founded real estate companies in Chicago. And she and Stacey Slattery continue to do a phenomenal job for their clients um, to this day. So had a great start with my real estate career there, was cr- quickly promoted to a listing agent. So I would go around and you know, take measurements and take pictures and write ads and build relationships with clients. Um, that was a big part of of the role that I had was building relationships with our clients because we were just running around showing apartments, right? Our, our our clients would come in and say, I own this building. I need somebody to help me rent it mm-hmm. out. And Karen and her team had a group of leasing agents and we would get yeah. paid commission to go out and lease these apartments. Um, and we had an issue. We had a problem. Um, our owners, we were paid on commission, right? Mm-hmm. Owners would call and they would want to know what's happening with my apartment. How many showings have I had? What's going on? You know, and we weren't paid to take care of the clients. And a lot, you know, we were, we were, a lot of us were young too, right? Yeah. So we're, we're like, okay, well, if you're not going to run an apartment, I don't want to talk to you. So I noticed that there was this issue. There was this problem. And I actually got in an argument with our office manager about it. And Karen, the owner of the company walked in and saw us having this squabble you know, cause I was on the phone. I'm a talker. Clearly mm-hmm. I was on the phone too long with a client and I was like, look, this guy is really upset. He, you know, we've had his listing for a while. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know how many showings he's had. He just, he doesn't know. And like everybody is on the phone with prospects and the office manager's like, yeah, our job is to rent apartments. Like you got to do this. And Karen's like, you two in my office, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. This is my new job. <laughs> Long story short, she heard us out and she was like, you know what? You're right. And so she created a role for me doing basically client management, um, which to this day is something that I am incredibly passionate about. And, and that it feeds into um, it feeds into the company that I'm running now. So that's the very, very, very long story um, of how I got my start in real estate and it just hasn't stopped from there. Nice. So biggest lessons so far to date. Oh my gosh. Um, your own, I'm going to guess create your own job. <laughs> I, no, you know, it, it's interesting that you say that. I've really put off. The cat wants to be involved. <laughs> we hear you. What do Same you think? Cat that's been across multiple cities. Yes. Libby is the best traveled rescue cat. Adopt, don't shop, folks. Best traveled rescue cat in North America. Um, biggest lesson learned. You know, starting my own companies also wasn't planned. Um, I had moved back out to San Francisco to take a job with um, Align Residential. There's a fantastic boutique management company specializing in hospitality-focused, um, you know, 
experience management, property management of, of really beautiful high-end buildings uh, in the Bay Area, Seattle, and Los Angeles. And love the company, love the values, love everything. It just wasn't right fit, right time. And gratefully have a strong relationship with, you know, the president of the company who hired me. And we realized yeah. early on in course corrected. So I'm now consulting for them. Um, and one of the things that I realized is that I'm, I'm really, really passionate about people mm-hmm. and process. And this is something that we often, and especially in the founding fledgling stages of companies, don't think we have time to work through or to deal with. And I think it's critically important. Um, I think it's critically important that we focus on our people. I think it's critically important that we have processes that are inclusive and promote diversity and growth and innovation. Um, there are so many amazing groups in multifamily like Flamingo, like Fetch, uh, like Latch that are supporting multifamily. If we can, you know, open ourselves to technology, to new ways of doing things, um, we'll, we'll really do well. And, and look, we have an incredibly dynamic market right now with COVID, which has sped up some trends that were happening already. So, um, lessons learned. I mean, gosh, I know nothing. I mean, that's, that I think is my hardest. Also, that's hard to believe you have worked for, (laughs) I'll say many of the largest like property management companies. So you've been at John Buck, you've done UDR, you've done Alliance, and then you just finished up at at Align. So I, I think you probably know a little bit. <laughs> to well, no, that's super nice, Jude. But the more that I learn, the more that I realize that I, how little I know, right? Um, and how much I want to learn. I guess that's, I guess maybe that's the more important thing to think through. And yes, I have worked for some, um, all phenomenal groups with wonderful people. And I've learned so much every step of the way. You know, John Buck Company is but a Titan in Chicago, Mr. Buck is got a big personality, a big heart. You know, he gives back to the community in ways that I think a lot of people in Chicago will never know. He cares very, very deeply about the city. He cares about his people. Um, and one thing that I learned at John Buck company is, is they know how to retain employees. Um, you know, Sherry Davis uh, is the chief, administrative officer, I believe of the company. And she's been there about 25 years. Um, and she, I, I have fond memories of getting to know her when, when I was working with the company, you know, they really have done a phenomenal job of Mm -hmm. retaining great talent. Um, you know, they're primarily a commercial, historically primarily commercial developer. And so when I worked for them, I was able to, to, I was, I managed the only residential property that they had and the only property that they had in Philadelphia. So it was a really unique situation. And I was able to teach them and help them learn and grow in the residential space. Right. Um, and that was really super fun. Um, they're very customer focused. Um, if you live in Chicago, the moment you walk in a John Buck building, whether you know, it's a John Buck building or not, you know, cause it's, you know, double-breasted blue suit, red carnation, gold mm. buttons, you know, the standard of care there is, is paramount. Um, every single person that works there goes through Ritz-Carlton customer service training. Yeah. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. So tenant experience, and and they really changed the game in commercial in, in tenant experience, wherein, you know, I think a lot of the um, commercial managers 
that at the time were, you know, okay, great. We'll do your TI. We do your build out. Mm-hmm. They really thought, okay, well, how they did resident events for their office tenants. Right. And now you see that as the norm, but, but yeah, it's become pretty standard, but they've been doing that since the nineties. Wow. Right. So um, when you look at, uh, I think one thing that you mentioned that I found really interesting was uh, for your first job, part of how you ended up creating one role was focused on servicing the actual owners or the clients. That's right. And then so as you've worked at those different companies, like how have you encountered that? Because for large multifamily, you do have to do that for the asset managers. You have to do that for the uh, clients and all of that. So how how has that changed your perspective when it's something that's already built in that you have to do? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I've only spent a small portion of my career working in third-party property management, uh, which is kind of interesting. Mostly it's been directly for owner developers. And so what's the Bob Marley song? You got to serve somebody, right? <laughs> Great song. Um, I think the client relationship is really interesting. And I think to be successful in any role, you have to define for yourself who is the client. Um, and in third party, it's easy, right? When I was working with Alliance, who is my client? Livecore and Trammel Crow. Okay. They, they hired us to do a job. We work for them. And that's, that's a very clear delineation. Um, when I worked for Forum Real Estate Group in Denver, I was an asset manager. So I had four different third-party property management companies that were reporting to me and I was the client. And so what I'll tell you is that um, going from client service to being the client, I was probably one of the worst <laughs> asset managers from a client perspective that our property managers had ever seen. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, uh, in, I, what, in what sense and why? I had incredibly high expectations. I knew or felt that I knew. I'll say that I felt that I knew property management inside and out. Um, and up until that point, I guess I had done some third party, but it was it was very different. It was on a different scale. It wasn't on the institutional scale. It was on an individual scale. Um, and I I just took an approach that was aggressive. You know, I was like, this is what we want. I was, and I thought in my mind, I'm like, I'm being clear. I'm being direct. Um, that's what I thought. And I gratefully had partners in these property management companies who were open to sharing feedback and we were able mm-hmm. to work through and turn, turn that around. And I really learned a lot from, um, from Kevin Fultz. He's the managing director of development at Forum Real Estate Group and truly one of the most humbling, intelligent, um, generous people that you could ever hope to work for. Um, Truly just has a mentor spirit, um, incredibly, incredibly good at his job um, and really just a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, You know, we we talked it out. He's like, Carol, you got to pull him along. You can't push. You got to pull. And so what I learned is that to be a client and to be a good client takes just as much work as being good at serving clients and good at at customer service. And so 
what that really showed me, and then and then when I went to work for Alliance and I and I had uh, again Live Corn Trammel Crow, also two of the best clients that you could have because they took a true partnership approach mm-hmm. with us. They said, "You guys are the expert." in this area, we're the expert in this area. Here's what we're bringing to the table. Yeah. Here's what we want to partner with you on. And I would say the strongest relationships that I've had and seen are when that, that, that the client isn't coming to the table saying you work for me, right? Mm -hmm. Those days are done. Um, but when the, the client comes to the table and says, here's my area of expertise and the, vendor comes to the table and says, here's my area of expertise. And they partner together. And I'm really seeing a shift in multifamily of that true partnership rather than this client customer relationship. Yeah. And what I've like noticed as well is that has definitely accelerated um, since we work with a lot of different property managers. Yeah. When we first started before it was, you either just spoke with the property manager or you spoke with the asset manager. Mm-hmm. Now I'm noticing more that we have a lot of meetings where it's put people in the same room. And it has definitely been really helpful because a lot of times, instead of having like one conversation with one party that has like very different perspectives on something, you have both and they're able to bring different perspectives like, yeah, this is why we want to implement this, but here's why this is important from a portfolio level. That's right. So that, yeah. So that's like great to see because that's something I hadn't thought about. I've noticed it, but I never really articulated that it's changing. And it takes thoughtfulness and effort and it takes making mistakes and having open, transparent, honest communication. And this is something that we have to facilitate. It doesn't happen on accident. <laughs> Again, I like to think of myself as a direct, honest, open person. Mm-hmm. I have some communication history that shows that that came across as aggressive, pushy, you know, <laughs> not in the best way. Um, we were able to work through it, thank goodness. Um, but I, I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from, and this is where, you know, to your question earlier, um, you know, about starting my own, own business, the, the hardest thing about that is, is right now it's just me. Yeah. I really thrive on having those people in the room who are overhearing the phone conversation or on the call with you and after the fact can go, hey, I know you. I know that this is what you meant, but this is what I heard. Yeah. This is how we can communicate better, right? And that we work through it together. Um, and this is an area where I think COVID has been especially challenging for people and it's opened up a lot of weaknesses in their operational and organizational systems because they rely on somebody overhearing what they're saying or being around yeah. and you don't have a, a, a systemic way to check yeah. and balance what they're doing and how they're communicating. And they don't train people on communication. Right. There's not an active typically there may be companies out there that are doing it. And if if there are, please come my way. I would love to get to know you. But, you know, training on communication, I think, is is critical for any organization. Um, And it's, you know, training on listening to yourself and to others. So you what I would love to learn next is really go more in depth on your company. So how did you go from. Align Residential uh, as the VP for Residential to looking at 
starting your own company. So what inspired it? And then what has that journey been like? And then what does your company actually do? Yes, those are all great questions. Um, and I was joking a little bit, but also very serious earlier when I said that it happened on accident, because it did. But it's also something that has come up over the years. I've had a number of people either that I've worked with or that I've met through my career reach out and say, hey, I, I know you're direct and I need somebody who can tell me just what's really going on. Like shoot it to me straight and help me solve this issue. I have a question about positioning my new lease up that I'm developing. I have a question about how I handle the situation with my third-party property management company. I have a question about how I handle a problem that I'm having with my client. Those types of things, um, I get asked those questions a lot. I also am um, active in the multifamily technology space. Um, Mm -hmm. I've, over the years, become involved in short-term rentals and um, fetch package delivery. I mentioned, so I'm really interested in these ancillary-type programs. And so... I've found that I've ended up taking very consultative roles with these startups that are looking multifamily and helping them put together their pitch packets to understand how multifamily works so that they can present in a way that will make sense so that they can find the correct audience so that they can put together the correct information. So helping, helping those kinds of companies partner together. And all of this has happened very naturally over the years. Um, One area where I've been pinged pretty consistently over the last 10 years is by development groups very early on in the development process, Mm -hmm. where it's not time to bring in a property management company, but they want to know, does my concept make sense? Does my unit Mm -hmm. make sense? Let's touch base on the rate. So I've done some kind of one-off consulting over the years and it's been fun, but it's usually just been, you know, ad hoc when I have time or when in between projects. And by the way, I love how you frame that. Um, So a lot of times when you ask someone like, what does your company do? Right away, they're like, we do X, Y, or Z. We have X, Y, and Z features. I like how you framed it from the problem perspective, the problem that you solve, which can be very open-ended. I'm glad that you think that because I've been driving myself crazy trying to figure out what exactly is it that I do. (laughs) I know what I do. I'm a problem solver. I'm a fixer. Uh, if, you know, like Olivia Pope is my hero, less <laughs> all the violence, you know, but that really is, you know, I will ask you the tough questions. Um, I can help you distill, demystify, and clarify whatever ball of junk you have in front of you that you haven't been able to work your way through. Uh, and then if I can't do that, if there's a sticky piece that, that I can't help, I promise I know somebody who does. And I mm-hmm. love to connect people. Um, so, you know, I'm glad that you like that. So yeah, so that's it. I mean, I'm available at an ad hoc basis, um, both institutional and to individual investors. I've found a little bit of a niche market with mid-sized investors. So, you know, people who maybe are individuals or families or small groups who own 20 to 60 unit assets, right? Um, So not these enormous, you know, 400 unit buildings that Mm -hmm. that we're working with on the industrial, uh, sorry, the institutional side of things, um, but but smaller units. And I, I actually have a client 
that I'm working with who has some industrial, like, but small industrial, like a warehouse. I mean, um, her portfolio total is, I think, 47 units and it's comprised of single family homes and small team, mm-hmm. small, small, some industrial. And, and she's done it all on her own. Yeah. Um, and you so see for something like that, I guess, so what kind of problems do you solve for her? Asset strategy. Mm-hmm. Right. And so bringing an institutional framework to a small business. Mm-hmm. So it's almost so like pretend I'm five and explain that to me like a five-year-old. Um, like a five-year-old. So it's like going to McDonald's to learn how to make a hamburger. Mm. Right? So you can make a regular hamburger at home one way. Mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know. Do I want to be McDonald's? Maybe that's, but you're fine. <laughs> the five-year-old doesn't understand McDonald's. Yeah. Trying to make it for the masses. So, so it's like I, learning from the best, like finding the best practices, I guess, across the board that you've learned. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, but, but without having to go and hire an asset manager or mm. a COO or a C, you know, they're running their own portfolio and they've been doing that. But but you get to a point in time where your expertise that you've learned mm-hmm. on the go isn't enough, right? And so I've got two clients that I'm working with that fit this bill right now. And it's really interesting. Um, one in particular, I'm helping them to find and vet a new property management company. Mm-hmm. They have a professional property management company at their assets and they were having some challenges and we tried to work through the challenges and it became mm-hmm. clear the solution was a new management company. And this, again, this, this small group of people has owned these properties for close to 30 years, Wow! but there are, they didn't have the right company working for them, but they didn't know, they didn't know the right questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm working with them to set up their own internal standard operating procedures, asset strategy, and helping them find their management company who should be able to help them do some of these yeah. things, you know, and that's been, that's been super fun. Um, so I'm, it, it's been very, very rewarding to be able to take all of this institutional knowledge mm-hmm. and work with groups that don't have any kind of exposure to it, but, but need the help. And, and it's going to make a very real impact on their bottom line in yeah. their investments over time. I know the last time that you and I spoke, you mentioned something that I found really interesting, which is how do you translate uh, like resident experience to more of those like smaller spaces? So I'm curious to know how that has played into your know, consulting with your current clients. It's a great question. Um, what I am gleaning, and it's been year, it has been years since I've worked directly as a manager with smaller mm-hmm unit, um, smaller unit counter or units that don't have any type of amenity space. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really interesting piece of the market. I think this is again, an underserved piece of the market. And I don't have mm-hmm. the number in front of me. I need to get it. But I, I mean, if you look at the amount of, and just for the sake of argument, we'll call it institutional investments. So mm-hmm. the large multi-unit buildings that are owned by big REITs or mm-hmm. you know, large investment groups, You've got the big flashy buildings that, and I've worked on them. I'm proud to have worked on them. Mm-hmm. 
there are so many pieces of investment real estate that are owned by single unit investors. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in Chicago for five and a half years uh, for a company called Post Oak Property Management. And we specialized in asset strategy, um, management, disposition, and construction for that user, for a single mm-hmm. unit to up to 12 unit multifamily was our largest uh, multifamily asset that we would manage. So we had 240 clients um, and over 1,100, or no, sorry, 240 clients and over 700 residents throughout the city, just based on the yeah. size of the properties. Um, and so that was similar. So I have some background here, right? And, and those are buildings that don't have amenities. And so a big mm-hmm. part of the service that we provided then was customer service. Yeah. Um, we had people that ha- owned single unit condos. Maybe they bought a two flat and they, you know, transferred for work, but they wanted to keep it as an investment. You know, mm-hmm. these things are out there. People, individuals, and I think they should, individuals should purchase real estate as an investment. I think it's a fantastic strategy for building your wealth. You know, yeah. owning real estate is is tremendous. Um, you know, and if you can balance your portfolio between stocks that that match S&P 500 and, and real estate, you're going to mm-hmm. set yourself up truly for success financially and in the long term. Um, so what we sold, and I know I'm backtracking a little bit, but I promise I'm going to. Oh, there you go. <laughs> we were the service, right? Mm-hmm. It was me renting the apartment, helping you sign your lease, me putting together the gift basket and putting it in the apartment when somebody moved in. It was me writing the advertisements that would get people in the door and and maybe, you know, advertising it in a way that would let us get 10 or $20 more per month or whatever that variable is per month. Um, now, I think in a larger multifamily space, we've become a little too reliant on ourselves being the service, mm-hmm. right? There's technology that's out there that can help us give even better service and even better results. And in this case, for that small multifamily, you know, that ownership group that maybe only has four or five units and Mm -hmm. and needs professional management help, you'll drive yourself crazy. And it's not a sustainable business model to take on those types of buildings, historically speaking. Uh, unless they're high end and they can pay a higher management mm-hmm. fee if you're doing it all physically yourself. And this mm-hmm. is where the technology piece comes in. Yeah. So I believe that there are multiple avenues of technology that can provide an excellent resident experience that's scalable yeah. from single unit, six unit, 12 unit to 400 unit. Mm-hmm. As long as our technology partners are willing and able to work on scale. Yeah. And what ours go to is that all the technology is already like there. So mm-hmm. the easiest example that I always that I always get back to this is when I talk with property managers, one of the most common things that come up is they are really busy. And part of why they're busy is they are constantly responding to resident calls, emails, people mm-hmm. stopping by the office. And in I'll, this is a guess, but like 90% of the situations, it's things that could have been handled by self-service. Yep. If you compare it to like a tech, uh, like a tech company, which in a lot of ways, a property, uh, a building is a tech company in some ways. You have customers, those customers pay you a fee every month. 
you want those customers to renew every year. And that's really the model that pretty much every technology company operates on. That's right. And a key thing for most tech companies is customer support and knowledge base. You have a question, you have one place you go to, you can find that information yourself. So you don't have to actually email them. If you do try to ask a question that's already been completed or answered, you get a pop-up that's like, oh, this might help you solve your problem. So that's one less email that they get. For property managers, they get the same questions over and over and over again. But I've yet to meet a property management company that has implemented a solution that allows them to really scale their customer service and their customer support, which at the end of the day ends up saving the site team a lot of time. That's right. That's absolutely right. And so think about that though. So think about how much time a property manager of like a 200 unit building spends Mm -hmm. on answering those questions. And then think about somebody who just has, you know, maybe they've got a 50 unit building and Mm -hmm. unit building, you know, these, there are management companies that are out there that are trying to service Mm -hmm. the smaller piece of the market, but they really can't scale it. Yeah. Right. Because they're not physically there and people have to wait. Yeah. Response. Now, oftentimes those expectations are different. So there is a cost benefit that happens in somebody's mind and a cost expectation. Mm-hmm. If you are paying, you know, a lot of times you'll rent or somebody will rent a home in a two or a three flat that doesn't have any money, uh, any amenities because they want to save money. Mm-hmm. Their expectation goes down in terms of customer service to a certain some, extent. In some way, yeah. In some ways, yeah. depending on their experience. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody has a different value of money, right? If you're making $250,000 a year and you go rent a $1,400 a month apartment, Mm -hmm. your expectations of that apartment are probably going to, probably, this is being very, and we're assuming a lot, probably going to be very low. If you make $15 an hour Mm -hmm. and rent a $1,400 a month apartment. Mm -hmm. Expectations are very high. (laughs) are going to be different, mm-hmm. right? And this is where we get supply pressure mm-hmm. and we probably shouldn't start on a minimum wage conversation because I know people can, <laughs> um, that, but it, it really does make a difference, you know, because the, the market rate, the average market rate is the average market rate. Mm-hmm. COVID has changed things in a way that's really interesting because in the larger cities, San Francisco is a prime example um, people are negotiating their rent. Mm-hmm. There's an enormous amount of pressure in the marketplace due to people leaving, people breaking their leases, people going to live. You know, they don't have to be in the most expensive city in the United States for mm-hmm. work anymore. They can go move to Cincinnati, Ohio. They can go move. They could stay in California. They could go move a couple hours north, a couple hours south and save significantly. And they're doing that. And so you've got um, an interesting situation now where you've got people that are you're negotiating for the rent. We're coming out of it. Yeah. But in the in the thick of COVID, and they they expect more mm-hmm. because now they're home all the time, right? So now you're servicing as home plus office, mm-hmm. and they're around. So anything that's wrong, anything that's on their mind, you know, they want to reach out and they they want um they want help. So. To answer your question about resident experience, it's all communication. Mm-hmm. 
um, what residents expect. And, and this ranges from your one unit, you know, your sweet little $1,400 two bedroom mm-hmm. over in Chicago. I don't know if those exist anymore. It's been a long time since I worked there, probably somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, $1,400 a month, just basic apartment, probably no air conditioning in Chicago, no parking spot, not close to the train. Mm-hmm. Your $8,000 a month apartment, luxury apartment in San Francisco, the bells and whistles may be different. And we're seeing from a development perspective, the kind of arms race with mm-hmm. amenities is shifting. And it started shifting pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, COVID is really, I think, solidified um, some of those trends and that we're looking at, you know, in our common area spaces, more work from home spaces. And again, this is a trend that we were starting to see even pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID didn't change everything. It just highlighted issues that we already yep. had and it pushed forward trends that were already in motion. So I think it's really important when we look and think about the health of the market. COVID has definitely change things for certain industries in a way that um, was was completely unexpected, right? Mm-hmm. The restaurant industry is one of them. Yes. But I would say for real estate, we were starting to see these trends already. And it, it I think it sped it up. Um, so we're seeing great developments in secondary and tertiary markets, um, attainable housing or workforce style housing where we're building nice apartments. Maybe they don't have 25,000 square feet of amenities. Maybe Mm -hmm. they have 5,000 square feet of amenities. We have a gym. We have some work from home space and maybe a little bit of an outdoor. People really are interested in outdoor space. Um, And that's it. You know, nothing super fancy. Um, So kind of given all the... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but but even in... You know, I I was the general manager of a 42-story high-rise in downtown San Francisco with almost 30,000 square feet of amenity space. And it was beautiful. And we had original artwork that was custom made for the building. Um, it was it was truly, truly a remarkable project. And, and the residents appreciated aesthetically the space, everything that was there. But what they appreciated the most, what they wanted the most was interaction. So planning events, getting together, that community building. So that I think is the ultimate amenity is, is community. And I think you can build that at any scale. Mm -hmm. And I know you, you mentioned this already when we first like chatted that something that I found really interesting, which is um, something that COVID has really like exposed the fact that for a lot of people, their workplaces were their community. And then as that's been taken away, it's really increased the need for community. And that's part of why, for a lot of property managers right now, they do get a lot of complaints and just more neediness from their residents. And part of that is because the residents are just restless. It's like they don't have their work family. They are now just like in this space that for some of them before, it really was just a space to come and sleep, relax, and then go back to their work family. That's right. That's right. And I, you know, the work family thing is something that I, I wrestle with. And we talked about this I think that building a healthy work culture is really mm-hmm. important. I think that having the support of your colleagues is really important. I think there are some um, company cultures that verge on toxic, where it's mm-hmm. 
you know, there are functional and dysfunctional families and there are functional and dysfunctional workplaces. And what mm-hmm. I'm interested in is understanding how to increase the functionality for yeah. everybody. Um, and now that our workplace and our home has blended so much, we're really seeing how that comes out. Mm-hmm. And, and residents, I wouldn't even say that in my experience is that they're complaining as much. And in fact, at the beginning of COVID, we really saw people kind of come Together because we're all facing this horrible thing. Yeah. COVID has provided us with an opportunity of a common pariah. And there is nothing better to bringing the diversity <laughs> of people together than mm-hmm. that one thing that everybody just doesn't like. Yeah. And this is great because it's not like we don't like a person. We don't like a disease that's killing people, mm-hmm. right? It's a perfectly acceptable thing to want to smash. Yeah out of existence. So we have this incredible opportunity for unity, for connection. And we saw that happen at the beginning. And so people were incredibly understanding when, you know, when COVID first happened and, and we had to roll out and say, we're only doing emergency maintenance requests right now mm-hmm. for everybody's health and safety. They were like, oh, thank goodness. Cause who wants somebody in their home? Yeah. that's going to people's homes. Like that doesn't make sense. And then as we learned more about the virus and how it worked and we're able to operate differently and go, okay, we can keep a, a small g- a gym open mm-hmm. one household at a time, sanitized in between. We know that we have the proper ventilation and air filtration systems. Masks are required. You know, we started to be able to work with our residents on that. Um, the areas where we saw a lot of pressure package delivery, mm-hmm. grocery delivery, and just people wanting human contacts. You know, when people are at work, they get home usually when the management office is closed, right? Now that people are working from home, mm-hmm. they if, if a manager is working in the office, and a lot of companies had their managers start working from home, if they, could, mm-hmm. if they see somebody, we want to interact with them. Whether or not it's, it's safe for COVID, <laughs> We want to do that because we're social creatures. We want to connect with each other. Yeah. And so it's it's been, we're just interacting with them a lot more. And so it, it, it makes me think, do our management office hours make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. so, but you're going to talk more about that. So do you feel like the property managers have some type of responsibility or obligation to drive community or to drive uh, that level of engagement? Now that's a great question. I would say yes and no. Um, I would say, do they have the obligation? Certainly not. No, you know, their their obligation at its core, when I started working in the industry, property managers collected rent and they sent the plumber when your kid, you know, tried to flush his rubber ducky down the toilet. You know, like, you know, picture, I don't know, Fran, I think I think Fran Leibowitz has this great thing where she talks about a New York superintendent and what that's mm-hmm. supposed to be. like the guy in the wife beater, you know, living in the apartment upstairs who comes down and like bangs on your pipes and leaves. But, you know, things have changed. And I think we as a multifamily industry have used that, mm-hmm. um, or maybe not used, but we've taken an opportunity to create value. Mm-hmm. We see that people want it and we want to create value. So, we take a building like when you know we build all these amenities people want to get together they move into a building that's like that because they want 
to socialize. Mm-hmm. If somebody wanted to stay by themselves, they would probably move into a single family home or a building that didn't have common area amenities, or maybe they wouldn't, you know, everybody's different. But do I think it's an obligation? No. Do I think that it's a gift and something that's really smart and something that we know for a fact drives value in our real estate investment? Absolutely. I think the critical piece is to know what your asset is, know what your strategy is, and Mm -hmm. be consistent about it. Um, You know, one of my clients has two different buildings, two different managers, and their residents have two completely different experiences because they don't have, they haven't standardized their practice. And that's something that I'm asking them to do. Um, And one of the things that we talk about is how do you standardize without losing the authenticity? And it's tricky. And, And in those buildings and they're smaller, you know, they're, they're smaller buildings. Um, one of the managers, they do two resident events a year. They do mm-hmm. a summer event and they do a holiday event. Mm-hmm. Two. And again, it's a 50 some odd unit building. The residents all come. They all show wow. up. Wherein, you know, my 42 story high rise, we did resident events every week. Yeah. Um, and we had great turnout. I could not have 800 residents attending a resident event. It doesn't make yeah. sense. We do them in a different, you know, we have to do them more frequently so that more people can. Yeah. Um, and people, so I think it really is like understanding like what your asset is and what the demographic is and just like everything else about uh, the property. Like you should know for everything. And what you're capable of, right? Yeah. The first and foremost, and where I think we've got to make sure we focus, the basics have to get taken care of first, mm-hmm. right? Bills have to get paid. Maintenance has to be done. And I know I've been mm-hmm. talking about resident experience. Our maintenance teams are the unsung heroes of the property management industry. Mm-hmm. Could not do what we do without them. They are in and out of people's homes. Same with our housekeeping staff. You know, they are doing the hard work every mm-hmm. every day of keeping these buildings running. That yes. stuff has to happen. The taxes have to get paid. The mortgage has to get paid. Yeah. All of that stuff has to happen. And I think we always have to remember that that's the basis of customer service is, mm-hmm. is doing what you're supposed to do, doing yeah. what you say you're going to do, mm-hmm. um, not over-promising and under-delivering. Yeah. Okay. This was an excellent discussion and I appreciate you being on. Definitely learned a lot. And I'm really excited to see how uh, the company takes off. If someone wanted to learn more, like where should they go? I know you said the website is as of yet uncompleted. No, it's up. It's live. Uh Um, It's it's enochco.com. So it's my last name, E-N-O-C-H, and then co, like company.com. And you can go there. I welcome feedback. (laughs) Me right now, it's a... uh, it's on a GoDaddy template. Um, we're working on getting real design and, and branding together. But yeah, you know, as, as we move forward, um, mm-hmm. I think it'll become more specific and more, mm-hmm. more clear and have kind of that XYZ format. But I'm having fun keeping it open mm-hmm. right now, really enabling me to learn yeah. what markets I can serve um, mm-hmm. rather than trying to force or pigeonhole something just that I think is needed. Mm-hmm. 
it's, it's kind of coming to me, which is interesting and opening up some avenues that I didn't expect. Right? Yeah, no, that's definitely like the tech approach of any company. I think just keep things generic enough, but specific enough, whereas the right people do come along and then you see what's like the actual problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really, for somebody who loves to collaborate, it's, it's a strange thing to be doing. Uh, look, it's, it's Enoch and company for a reason. I don't intend it to just be me for much longer. Um, I love collaborating. I love bringing people together. Um, and I am, I am certain to be, uh, adding hopefully. Sooner well, I'm sure you know a lot of people in the industry that would love to be part of the uh, company. No. Yeah. So this was an absolute pleasure having you. I love your positivity. I love how you think about customer service, love the experience in the industry. And I think a lot of people can learn a lot from you. Thanks. So, I hope so. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and um, hope we get to continue the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much, Carol. It was an awesome pleasure having you on. Thanks. You got it, Jude. Bye.